Colossus is defined as a person or thing of immense size or power. As we consider what it means to be an American, we often think first of the titans and heroes of our history books. Yet the ideals of our nation are rooted not in the success stories of these lucky few, but in our collective value of liberty. At the base of the Statue of Liberty, a poem proclaiming a new Colossus is inscribed. What can it teach us about our country? I'm Izzy Amoruso. I'm Edward Sturm. And this is Duality. Every week we bring you two stories and a conversation about them. This week on Duality, Colossus. Emma Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus, and H.W. Brand's book, American Colossus, interpret the strength of our nation in two completely different ways. But the conflict in these two narratives, and in our country, is the same. So, I'm going to read a poem, The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command. The air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame, Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she, with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. So Emma Lazarus wrote the poem, The New Colossus, in 1883 to raise money for the pedestal on which the Statue of Liberty would be displayed. And that fundraising event was really the end of the poem for many years. Uh, it was not originally included with the statue uh, at that unveiling ceremony. It wasn't actually inscribed on the pedestal until 1903, more than a decade after her death. Uh, but since then, her words ha have really given purpose to uh, this, this otherwise kind of cold uh, statue. So in, in the modern age, we give a lot of attention to the end of the poem. You know, the, those lines, um, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Uh, but there's a lot that we miss. The beginning of the poem is an allusion to the statue of Helios in the ancient Greek city of Rhodes. Uh, the Colossus of Rhodes, as it is called, was said to have straddled the harbor into the city. Uh, so the line, conquering limbs astride from land to land, is actually a double entendre, referring both to the statue that had, you know, legs on, on both lands, both sides of the harbor, uh, but also then to the, the imperialist campaigns, the, the, those conquering limbs of, of the ancient people. Uh, kind of beside the point, but I do find it really interesting. Um, in actuality, it would have been impossible for the bronze statue to be constructed in a way that its legs could have spread across the harbor, given how wide it is. It would have uh, collapsed under its own weight. Um, so, more accurately, that the statue was really just on, on one side of the harbor. Um, but, but that misconception is, is baked into the poem. Anyway, uh, what the poem does is juxtapose that symbol of Helios, um, a 
quote, brazen giant to the mighty woman with a torch and mother of exiles, as she's called, that is the Statue of Liberty. Um, and, and this is where we have the idea of the poem's title, that there is a new colossus, one that is gendered, that is hospitable, one that is not imperialist or brazen in the way that global superpowers were typically imagined, yet is still strong. Emma Lazarus brings the statue to life as a uniquely American symbol. Walt Hunter has a piece in The Atlantic about the poem, and one of the things he discusses is the use of the famous lines out of context. You know, we've all heard that, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, um, but, but rarely we consume the poem in its entirety, and when politicians quote the poem, you know, we get the abbreviated version. Um, so, so I'll read from the article. Uh, Walt Hunter writes, uh, Pelosi and Comey quote Lazarus to support a liberal narrative of American exceptionalism based on multiculturalism, diversity, and inclusion. Yet the collective immiserated masses invited and welcomed by these lines are tired, poor, and huddled, and at odds with the empowered, individualized hard worker that Comey and others reproduce as the ideal image of the immigrant. He continues, Lazarus's poem begins by repudiating the greatness to which Comey summons the poem as witness. It continues with a denial of nationalist narratives that are based on historical claims of ancient possessions. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, as the poem says. So I think that this is where we start to see the more radical elements of the poem. The central theme is about immigration, and I find it very relevant to our current discourse about immigration. Uh, there's, a, there's a tendency for us to point to the economic benefits of immigration, and our visa system is definitely set up in a way that prioritizes highly skilled immigrants uh, through things like the H-1B visa and more affluent workers and, and citizens. Uh, but the entire ethos of the New Colossus is that Lady Liberty calls out for those who are homeless and tempest-tossed. To understand why Emma Lazarus wrote this way at the time that she did, though, we have to understand her life a little bit more. Uh, so she was from a Hispanic Jewish family uh, and grew up uh, very, very wealthy in New York City. She had a, a mentor-mentee sort of relationship with Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, and during her lifetime, the pogroms in Russia uh, meant that there was a huge influx of uh, Eastern European Jewish refugees coming to America. Uh, if you know the the end of Fiddler on the Roof, when uh, the, the family is, is forced out by the military and they call out, we're going to America and, and we'll write you from there. That kind of thing was, was widely happening. Um, so... Uh, Emma Lazarus became a real advocate for that population and did a lot of humanitarian work, uh, founding uh, and volunteering uh, for different resources for them. Uh, and that activism was, was very present in her poetry and is certainly a part of the pro-immigration themes in the New Colossus. So when we talk about how Lazarus envisioned this new Colossus, I think it's more accurate to think of the poem as an aspiration rather than an assertion of nationalism. The time in which she wrote was, was full of anti-immigrant sentiments. In fact, the first Asian Exclusion Act was signed a year before she wrote the poem. So claiming the identity of this massive statue as a symbol of hospitality to immigrants was pretty bold. I find the entire thing really compelling. It's interesting that the poem uses the literal meaning of Colossus, like a statue, but also the figurative use of Colossus, a figure of power. 
I thought it would be appropriate to turn to the book American Colossus by H.W. Brands, which is a narrative history detailing the decades between the Civil War and the turn of the 20th century. So Brands is a professor at the University of Texas who's written Pulitzer Prize shortlisted biographies of FDR and Benjamin Franklin. The American Colossus highlights how titans of industry like J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie, and John D. Rockefeller paved the way for a new era of capitalism. In their respective industries, Morgan with finance, Rockefeller with oil, and Carnegie with steel, these men changed the relationship between business and the government. In the book, Brands highlights the historical tensions between democracy and free market capitalism, while drawing parallels to our current economic structure. As these men gained corporate power, they also gained a new ability to influence government through lobbying. So the present dynamic where corporations and the very wealthy have an undue influence on politics was was largely created at this time. Brands contends that understanding this capitalist revolution will help us better understand contemporary economics. Although the capitalist transformation produced unprecedented economic expansion and wealth for the United States, it also incited labor exploitation, environmental havoc, corruption, a meticulous policy of ethnic cleansing targeting a vulnerable indigenous population, and a destructive cycle of big business. Our contemporary capitalist framework stems from the 1980s with Ronald Reagan's presidency and his financial advisor, Milton Friedman, who was also financial advisor to Margaret Thatcher, the UK prime minister at the time. He founded the school of thought known as monetarism, which has morphed into current-day neoliberalism, uh, which is the belief in the free market as the way to distribute societal wealth most equally and justly. Reagan championed Friedman's ideology by introducing reforms, fighting trade unions, and limiting market regulation. His divisive policy reinstated the right-wing economic ideals that were preceded by periods of turmoil, and he demolished all of the regulations put in place by the New Deal during FDR's administration when uh, he attempted to provide economic relief during the Great Depression. So Reagan provided incentives for working harder, which he used to justify the dismantling of welfare programs, leaving the working class impoverished and unable to shift their socioeconomic status. Brand's thesis in the book is that capitalism and democracy are always in tension, that the concentration of capital necessarily requires the erosion of democratic ideals. What's interesting to me is that Brands ends up highlighting all the positives that came from these titans of industry gaining the power that they did. He embraces this duality between the erosion of democratic ideals at the hands of a hyper-capitalist system and the social good that came from people having that level of wealth. Yeah, the the duality between democracy and capitalism that you mentioned is also on display in contemporary politics, uh, as right now you have a lot of progressives who are becoming more aggressively anti-capitalist, and there are a lot of people looking to avoid that conflict, you know, as, as democratic socialism enters the mainstream with candidates like Bernie Sanders. Um, so what do you think has changed in the way we view someone like J.P. Morgan in the period of the American Colossus uh, compared to someone like Jeff Bezos today? Well, currently, capitalism is viewed much less favorably by younger generations, which is why candidates like Bernie have so many young supporters. So, whereas when J.P. Morgan donated to charity, people looked at that and thought, great, but when Jeff Bezos donates millions of dollars, people are more likely to think of that as just pocket change to him. Huh. 
Yeah, that uh, changing viewpoint on our economic system is, is interesting. Uh, the Pew Research Center has some statistics about people's perception of capitalism based on uh, various demographics. Uh, overall, I think it's important to note that a solid majority of Americans, 65%, still view capitalism as a positive thing. But as you mentioned, there are a very, very clear age differences. 18 to 29 year olds have only a 52% positive impression. So if you, if you imagine the, the direction of where, where our nation is headed, that, that could become much more prominent. The rhetoric I see on social media is almost entirely about abolishing our current economic system rather than reforming it. I also realize that, and I understand, I'm in somewhat of an echo chamber because the people I follow tend to have homogenous beliefs. But a lot of what I hear is that we need holistic financial transformation. Huh, I, I think that has a lot of uh, very clear parallels with the, the current conversation about abolishing the police. It's really easy for politicians and, and people resistant to major change to respond to events like the death of George Floyd with small reforms with, uh, you know, bias training and, and body cams and things like that. Uh, but there are a lot of people who are now saying that those kinds of efforts have failed and we need to take more radical action, you know, uh, burn the system to the ground and start over kind of feel. Um, a big part of that is time frame. You know, when, when Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012 or when Michael Brown was killed in 2014, there weren't the same calls for abolishing the police that there are now. Because at this point, the small stuff hasn't worked, and we feel like we have to move past that. So when we're talking about the difference between J.P. Morgan and Jeff Bezos, I think that that same dynamic exists as well. You're right. Just as the, the moral underpinnings of the Black Lives Matter movement inform a part of that question, the objection to capitalism is, is largely based on moral considerations. Traditionally, our conception of morals are rooted in religion— so it's interesting that the youngest generation who is most broadly making that objection against capitalism is also the least religious generation in history. Uh, Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, talks about how religion instills certain moral and ethical values, and so does capitalism. But instead, the latter puts emphasis on consumer goods and having the next cool thing. You know, when you're in middle school, what defines cool is, is clothing trends or possessions. Huh, that, that's an interesting point, uh, particularly about religion. It does kind of make me think, you know, go, going back uh, to Emma Lazarus, who herself was actually not very religious at all. She was not a devout uh, Jew, but she was very driven to act charitably in conjunction with her heritage uh, and, of course, a moral compulsion to help others. In terms of morality and uh, the implication of these narratives, Another thing that really stuck out to me about the American Colossus was how all the people brands highlights are men, which definitely has certain implications about society and capitalism. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that legacy of sexism certainly intersects with the Statue of Liberty, uh, which is pretty ironic for a 300-foot statue of a woman. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of touched on this in my story, but, but women were markedly absent from the unveiling ceremony of the statue. Not only was Emma Lazarus not recognized, uh, but women weren't even allowed tickets to attend. Um, women suffragists were protesting that day, um, and because they couldn't get tickets, they actually chartered a boat to sail by the island 
um, carrying signs in protest. Um, so, so this is another element of the discourse in this time period that we were talking back at the turn of the, uh, the 20th century that is still relevant today. A current day example of sexism in, in business specifically is the wage gap. You know, if you, if you Google top 10 CEOs in the United States, every single person you're going to see listed is male. The precedent set by, by this historical narrative is one that leaves out female contributions and leaves women with a glass ceiling, which could be why women have a much more negative impression of capitalism, which is uh, supported by the same statistics you shared from the Pew Research Center. So we've touched on a lot of conflicting ideas, but what do you see as the central duality of these narratives? Yeah, that is the question, isn't it? Um, well, I think of this symbolic colossus as the goal for our country to live out the duality between morality <laughs> and strength. Um, the, the America that Emma Lazarus honors and um, lifts up in her poem is one that is welcoming and hospitable, which are, you know, traditionally female characteristics, actually. Um, but it's also powerful and strong. Not only is the country able to balance being strong sometimes and, and being nice other times, it has the strength it does because it is compassionate. And in the same way as we consider economics, we as a nation are forced to figure out how moral considerations and economic prosperity coexist. The American Colossus book kind of points to a departure from this duality as we talk about the erosion of democracy at the hands of of extreme capitalism. It's evidence that this is something that is really easy to mess up. Even so, striving for the fulfillment of both elements is at the heart of what it means to be an American. There are so many historical examples of times when we have abandoned our morals in favor of economic gain, but my mind goes to Milton Friedman's time in Chile, as well as other Latin American countries, where he experimented with his new economic ideas that he was planning on implementing in the U.S., which resulted in rapid deindustrialization, increased unemployment, and poverty, which was already rampant in these countries. When Emma Lazarus distances America from being the conquering limbs from land to land, we aren't living up to her ideal. We've become what she spoke out against. Yeah, I think similarly of our actions in the Philippines uh, in the same time period as uh, Emma Lazarus's poem and, and the American Colossus. There are instances, uh, you know, I think of, of World War II, where we truly attempt to live out this duality by using our strength and prosperity to act as a force for good on the global stage. But even in a time like that, we see how our actions at home with the internment of Japanese Americans, for example, undermined that very duality. So our thesis here is not that America is horrible by any means. And in fact, just in recording this podcast, I've thought about the the um, privilege of liberty to, to speak uh, critically, you know, of, of the government in a particular way. But I, I think that what we are saying is that the ideal of a new colossus is a noble one, and it's one that's really difficult to achieve. We don't often completely achieve it. I view this similarly to the quest for perfection. We can never truly arrive. Nothing is ever perfect. There will always be flaws inherent in our nation. But to always be getting closer to that ideal, to that new colossus, is what's important. 
Next week on Duality, we explore the meaning of personal and societal success. Is it better to pursue your artistic passions or a more certain path that will lead to an affluent career? Thank you for listening to Duality. If you like what you heard, subscribe now on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.